This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 6, Episode 14 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today is the second part in our two-part series on James Horner, where we are going to be looking at primarily the movie which he won his two Oscars for, Titanic, as well as uh, the rest of his career, which is uh, large and varied yeah uh, leading that's up, a good way to put it <laughs> yeah leading up to uh, a, a movie that that just came out a couple weeks ago southpaw so we'll get into that too because i actually did see that uh, a few days back so we can we can finish up with that excellent but let's start with titanic now titanic was um a movie that came out in 1997 uh, it was directed by James Cameron, and James Horner wrote the music for it. Uh, he had previously worked with Cameron on Aliens 11 years prior, and their relationship was not good, so much so that at least one of them vowed that they would never work with the other one again. I forget which one, but it didn't go well. But I guess, you know, after 10 years, 11 years with James Cameron making some of the finest films ever in the history of film and James Horner writing some of the finest scores ever in the history of film, they decided that it was time to get the band back together and uh, make some Titanic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, the movie won 17,000 Oscars. 17,001, technically, because they didn't air one of the technical ones they got. Okay, all right, I forgot about yeah. that one. <laughs> um, it was, uh, 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 what, I mean, it made, like, more money than any other movie ever in history or something like that. And, yeah. uh, you know, two of those Oscars were won by James Horner. They also won for Best Picture. I guess that's noteworthy. It's on the AFI's list of the top 100 films of all time. But James Horner... He took home two Oscars that night, one for Best Original Score and one for Best Original Song uh, for My Heart Will Go On. So, Titanic. Now, before we get into James Horner's music in particular, let's talk about the movie itself. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about, about Titanic. Well, I think that uh, Titanic deserved all of the success that it got. I don't know if it deserved every Oscar that it received. Um, the hype and the hoopla around it got a little out of control. Well, let, let me ask you this. Let me ask yeah. you this. Um, yes. Where were you at as far as, you know, life or movie viewership or whatever in December of 1997, in terms of James Cameron fandom and all that. I adored James Cameron uh, up to that point. I loved uh, True Lies. I loved Terminator 2. 
I loved. Aliens, like the guy walked on water. Like if you put James Cameron's name on a movie, you would get me into the theater. Period and end of sentence. And I was a little skeptical about the whole Titanic thing, but I knew that when the ship sank, it was going to look fantastic. So that got me into the theater, hands down. And I saw it very early in its run because it was it, like what a lot of people I think forget is that it was a slow boil. It was yeah. not a huge splash. Well, no pun intended. Success from the get go. It, it it wasn't like uh, when you know X Men Two opens and it makes one hundred and fifty million dollars in a weekend. And then the next weekend, it has the customary, you know, 40% drop-off or whatever. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's true. Titanic made more in its second weekend than it did in its first. Right. Word of mouth propelled that movie forward. And the fact, a special tip of the hat should go to the movie for being able to appeal across, uh, I guess what you could say were traditional gender lines. Like... Repeat viewers traditionally up to that point were regarded as young males with disposable income were the ones that were going to multiple viewings. But they found with Titanic that it wound up being young females would go to multiple viewings. And I remember very specifically reading an article at the time about um, a group of girls that that the the uh, the reporter wrote about that it was like their second or third viewing It must have been their third and they were all going in with like a box of tissues, and the contest was to see who cried last <laughs> in the movie. Because, you know, it pulls at the old heartstrings. It does a really good job of it. Yeah. I think it's a really well-put-together movie. I didn't care for um, the main plot as much as others did, but all of the stuff around it I thought was brilliant. The effects were phenomenal, especially for the time. Um, the performances on the whole were great. I mean, David Warner was in it, and he was fantastic as, you know, the, the, the heavy right-hand man of, you know, the quote-unquote bad guy who, you know, wanted to marry uh, Kate Winslet. But, you know, and then you had the framing device of the old lady telling the salvage crew about the story and all of that. Like, it was just a really, it's an engrossing film. For me, the emotionally resonant parts were all about the people in steerage and you know the, the the band and the cook and all of those people like that was what really sold me about the movie but it's it is a fantastic film it really is yeah i agree i mean for me i was 17 years old and you know just starting to get into movies you know seriously for a couple of years at that point and you know i had discovered james cameron as well you know movies like the abyss you know i had the big box set the the film school in a box, uh, laser disc <laughs> set. And, you know, uh, Aliens was another one which was really high on the list for me. And I had discovered, you know, all of his movies. I had watched them all. I had even, <laughs> for my uh, junior thesis paper, I wrote um, a, 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 like a 10-page, 15-page paper, whatever it was, on James Cameron. And this was back before anyone that I knew or anyone was talking about you know him i mean it was just like um i was this 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 huge cameron fan when sort of no one around me was which is weird now yeah. you know but um because of that you know you heard about titanic and it had been you know in the making for a couple of years so you know i was very mm -hmm. anxiously awaiting 
this movie because I was too young to see True Lies and not interested in movies when True Lies came out. So I had never experienced Cameron on the big screen. And he was like my number one guy. So then, you know, especially when the first trailer came out, and I don't know if you remember that trailer, but in addition to all of like the awesome sweeping shots, you know, there's like all the stuff with like the boat sinking. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh my God. Like I was right at that point, like like where I'm I'm starting to, to sort of become aware of what's involved with the filmmaking process, you know? And yeah. and the stuff that he was doing in that trailer was so next level for me. You know, I'm just like amazed by the craftsmanship. And I'm like, I can't wait to see this. I had like I had recorded the the trailer off of TV, like E the E channel, yeah. they would yes. have their, their trailer. I think it was, they called it like trailer park or whatever, yes, where they, they just, did. they showed yeah. like trailers every week and I had recorded it and I just watched that again and again and again. And then it got pushed back cause it was supposed to come out 4th of July weekend, same, yes. week, same weekend as men in black, which there's, yeah. a, that's always a big, what if for me, you know, if it had gone up against men in black 4th of July weekend, would it have been nearly as successful as it ended up no. being? I, I, w- I will say authoritatively no, not a chance, because everybody goes for the entertaining movie. Like, you're, you're going to put up a, a, what was it, three and a half hour movie up against Men in Black, which is just nothing but quick jokes? Yeah. Not a chance. I mean, I, yeah, it really was perfectly suited to that late December slot, you know? And, yeah. and in that time, my anticipation was just building and building and building. And, I mean... <laughs> I will never forgive them for this, but like I remember like walking through the mall with my mom. I'm 17, you know, <laughs> and we're walking through the mall and there's the poster, that that very iconic poster where it's like the yeah. two of them embracing and then the ship is coming up in between them. And I'm like, "Look, mom, look at this." And I'm just staring at the poster just like, "Oh my god, this is going to be amazing." And she's like humoring me, like, "Yeah, yeah, it will be. Okay. All right. So then I hear a week later that she was out Christmas shopping with my dad, and she starts imitating me and making fun of me to him. I'm like, are you kidding me? Come Your on. Your mom's awesome. She's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and she, she did go to see it with me opening night. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Like, leading up to it. I was, you know, like at high school and everything, I was like, this movie's going to be amazing. Everyone, you know, watch out for this movie. And everyone's like, shut up, shut up. No one cares. <laughs> this is going to suck. It's just a, you know, I mean, they were going through the whole thing. And then, like, yeah. when we came back, because it came out the first day of winter break, like the, or the last day before winter break. So we come back two weeks, weeks later, and I'm like, yeah. You guys, you can all kiss my ass, right? <laughs> Highest, how many times did you see it? Yeah, that's what I thought, right? Yeah. You know, so, so yeah, I was really looking forward to it. And we went to see it, my mom and I, opening night at McClurg Court in Chicago, which was the theater, the THX certified, you know, still oh, my favorite theater of all time. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's where where we all lined up for episode one and episode two. It was gone by the time episode three came out, and yeah, it was um, it was an amazing experience. I have to say, like, I mean, the the crowd was just so. I mean, everyone rushed into the theater to go see. You know, sold out opening night, and it 
blew me away. Like, it was the first time. I mean, I had seen, you know, the special editions had come out earlier that year and everything, and that was an amazing experience. And I had seen a few other things, but this is the first time that there was, like, a new movie that came out, and it had that sort of epic scale to it, and it completely blew me away, you know? Sure. And I remember, like, (laughs) I remember coming home that night and going upstairs to my room, and I had my stack of Laserdiscs, like maybe like 50 movies on Laserdisc, and I'm looking through all of them, and I got, I got to the end of the stack, and I'm just like, nope, there's nothing that can possibly compare to what I just experienced. I, I'm not even going to bother trying to watch a movie now, you know? Yeah. I mean, that, that was, it, it blew me away, and um, it, it still does, you know, it, it's still, it's, it still yeah. holds up for me. It's it's no, it totally should. Yeah, absolutely. But it is c- crazy. It is one of those things. Cameron was talking about this. I think when they did the re-release for 3D, where like he's like, you know, you know, it was really big with you know teen girls and and everything. You know, like you were saying, and now all of those teen girls, you know, it's 15 years later or whatever. They're all adults and and stuff, and now they've got you know. Uh, husbands and kids and, and everything, you know, and the the people who saw it and loved it back then when they were, you know, like adolescents, they connected to it in that sort of like fantasy fairy tale aspect, you know, that idea of love. And it's like now as you age with the film, you start seeing different sides of it. And now you see, you know, those same people watching it now see it and appreciate like a different kind of love and a different kind of tragedy, you know, and kind of like what you're talking about with, uh, you know, the idea of protecting your family and and everything like that against, you know, this sort of unstoppable force or whatever. Right. And I, I thought that that was really interesting, and I think that it's true. I can see myself doing that, you know, for sure. Because, I mean, I, while, you know, there were a lot of people who were like, a lot of Cameron fans who were like, yeah, you know, the the first hour and a half was boring, but then when the ship was sinking, you know, that was awesome. I just want to fast forward to the end. That I never felt that. Like, I was so into that love story. It wasn't well, even funny. See, I, I think that there very much is a... Uh for lack of a better term, very much a macho impulse that exists, um, at, at, at least in my circle of friends it did, where nobody wanted to admit that, that that first hour and a half is why the second hour and a half matters. Yeah. You know, like, if you're not invested in the story by the time everything starts going south, then you're not going to care about the people that are sinking on the ship. You're not going to care about seeing Strauss in the bed with his wife and everything. Like, you, you really... He immerses you, even even though really the main plot is sort of just like Romeo and Juliet retread in, in a sense. But like it still grabs you enough. He he did such a good job of const- reconstructing the era, the world that while you're in that movie, you actually feel like you're there. You feel, you know, the only way I can say it is you feel authentic. And, you know, being there with everybody, I, like, there, there is a reason why when things start going south and there wasn't a single person in the movie theater seeing that movie that didn't, especially the first time, that didn't, like, openly weep. 
Yeah. Like you were just crying buckets by the end. And, you know, I was there uh, the, the first time I saw it, I was with I think with my friend Mike. And because, you know, I wasn't expecting anything quite like it. You know, I was just like, it's a Jim Jim Cameron movie about a sinking boat. OK, you know, like and I went in and I was skeptical as well. You know, like you mentioned how everybody was like, oh, this is going to suck and everything. Like as I remember reading Premier Magazine, which is gone now, yeah, talking about the troubles in July when they postponed it. Yeah. And they talked about, oh, this is bad news for Cameron. Look at how much money he's spending. He's going to be done if this isn't a success. And so everybody did go into it with a, a negative thing. And I think that that helps the, the movie back then because everybody goes in caught completely off guard because they just hear nothing but how it's a troubled production and how it's going over budget and Cameron can't rein it in. And the product you get at the end is just not what you expect from these stories that you've read. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is kind of crazy. I mean, like the, just what he did, you know, it would have been impossible. You know, a lot of people criticize him for telling like a fictional story kind of in this, uh, this non-fictional world or whatever. To me, that was like the perfect thing to do because it, it allowed him to do two things. One, it allowed him to sort of, um, bring the tragedy the scale of the tragedy down to a manageable level, you know, down yeah. to a level which the the average person could relate to. Because when you start talking about a tragedy of that magnitude, it becomes an abstract concept, you know? Yeah, so, you're, you're absolutely right, yeah. So what he did was he's like, here's a story of two people in the midst of this tragedy. Now, after after we've made you cry or whatever with about you know over the two of them let's take a step back and apply that let's multiply that by you know a thousand and you know this is what you get you know and and it's it's yeah. like th that you know is very impactful to me anyway but the other thing that it you know for someone like him who's way into the history and the historical accuracy of everything what it allows him to do is instead of making something which is completely scattershot and, and not really conducive to a cohesive narrative, it allows him to basically craft the narrative around the actual events so that he can yeah. touch on everything that he wants to touch on historically and, and you know, throw everything in there, in, in there that way. Coming down on him about the... I remember people at the time saying, oh, well, I think she gives the, yeah, she gives the finger at one point. And I remember how petty the criticisms became. In an article, somebody said, well, giving the middle finger wasn't really popular with the upper classes at that time. And I was like, are you kidding me? Is anybody going back to Raiders of the Lost Ark and critiquing, like, the, the hem of the trousers that he's wearing or anything like that? I mean, it's, it's the same concept. Indiana Jones never existed. However, the Nazis did. And World War II did. And so, you, you know, you can navigate through that. And, you know, you, you frame, like you said, your, your fictional story with, the, with the, the, the real. Yeah. I know. Like those, I mean, that's, that's kind of how you know you've made it. I mean, I'm, I'm shocked that it still happens today. But, you know, any time a movie, I mean, Avengers, how many articles were there about everything the Avengers got wrong? 
and all <laughs> of the little mistakes and you read half of them and you're like that doesn't even make any sense you know that's not <laughs> true no you're right. you're just making stuff up now you know <laughs> but yeah i mean i i don't know i i really do think that that titanic on the whole is a masterpiece i do think that it's one of the best movies ever made it's in my top 10 of all time i think it's james cameron's best i i I love everything about it i don't think it's james cameron's best but i do respect it and i do love it as anybody should yeah so okay well what about horner's contribution to the movie let's talk about the music first Uh, what, what 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 do you what do you think about the music it's a great soundtrack it fits it works. Uh, I listened to it a couple of times, um, you know, just to sort of, you know, revisit it and then bouncing back between other soundtracks and everything. And it, it works. I think that the, the, the score fits. I mean, that's the best thing you can say about a score yeah. is it contributes and it helps move the, the, uh, the story along and it doesn't feel out of place. Yeah. You know, I, I got the soundtrack when it came out, you know, because well, kind of like what John was talking about last week, where you want to relive the movie and, you know, you can't get it instantly or whatever. So one way that you can do that is by listening to the score. And um, it was one of those things where, like, e- even when I was watching the movie, I-, I was not necessarily blown away by the score so much. I mean, Horner's, like, style of music just on its own has never really been... Um, my my jam you know i'm i'm much sure. more interested in, like musically in what let's say goldsmith is doing or or williams or whatever but i i think that there's two two sides of it one is like well how good is the music on its own i mean you know i can listen to john bryant like i've never seen uh paranorman and yet I heard that John Bryan did the music for it. So, you know, I listened to the entire score because, I, I, you know, I just want to hear what John yeah. Bryan is doing. But then the, the flip side of that is like, well, how well does it work in the movie? You know, because it is music which is written for a movie, and that's right. what matters most. And when it comes to that, I think that Horner is amazing. And uh, Titanic, I really do think, is his masterpiece as well at least out of the ones that i've i've heard or seen um i I think i was talking about this on standard orbit but you know there are some set pieces and everything in that movie which are some of the most amazing sequences in movie history and the the score complements it so well you know i mean it it complements the visuals and and Mm -hmm. and cameron's you know sort of like visual language and everything is so solid that it just makes sense uh to 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 have music which complements it you know mm-hmm. I, I mean it and, and if you pulled out the music I, I don't know if it would work as well but i mean he just nails it he knows exactly what cameron's doing and he knows exactly mm-hmm. what he needs to do in order to support the visual language of the film and it, the result is stunning i mean there's two sequences in particular and they're not they're all in the first act you know it's like the 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 sinking of the ship is amazing sure and yeah. and i'm especially um uh, impressed throughout the movie but in the end in particular sort of the weaving in and out of uh like historical music and source music with 
you know, mm-hmm. the score and everything. That all works yeah. really well. But the two sequences which just blow me away again and again and again are um, the uh, approaching the ship, like when we're first introduced to Rose in the past. Yes. When she, that whole thing where they're, they're, she's like getting onto the boat, essentially, right? Yes. That's amazing. And then when they're pulling away from the dock and there's the whole, like, I'm the king of the world thing. Yeah. Okay. Like, yep. it's one of those things where I've struggled with this since the first time that I saw it, right? It's like, he, he, he does his whole thing where he's like, I'm the king of the world. And there's this urge in me to just be like, shut up. That's stupid. <laughs> this is the cheesiest crap I've ever seen in my life. And yet, like, that's what my mind is saying. But, like, my body, like, is having this visceral reaction to what's been building since, like, they started leaving Doc, right? Yeah. And sort of, like, the brilliance of the filmmaking and how perfectly the music, you know, enforces, reinforces that. And by the time he gets up there and he says, I'm the king of the world and the music swells, and then it goes to that amazing shot where it starts on one corner in the front of the boat and goes all the way down and comes out the back. I'm just like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life, you know? And the score is perfect, like one of the best pieces of music ever in movie history. So... That's that's my thoughts on that. Um, so your general impression is that you liked it. I thought, yeah, I thought it, it was, was a positive. It's, it's, a okay. pretty, it's a pretty good All movie, right. pretty yeah. good score. Yeah. <laughs> but now let's talk about uh, that song. Ah, my, yes, my song. heart will go on. You couldn't mm-hmm. get away from it, you uh, could especially if you watched VH1 with any regularity. <laughs> um, yeah. What did you think about the song? I got sick of it, like everybody else did. <laughs> I mean, come on, there wasn't. A, like you said, you couldn't escape it. Mm-hmm. It was like, uh, it, but it's just like any other movie song. The first time you hear it, you're like, oh, this is a beautiful song. And the second time you hear it, you're like, oh, this is pretty cool. And then eventually by the thousandth time you hear it. The same thing happened with uh, Everything I Do, I Do It For You with Brian Adams, which uh-huh. was attached to a horrible movie, but is a good song. You know, it's a nice ballad and everything. Like that got so overplayed that you were just like when you whenever you heard it, you were ready to just throw yourself out the window. And that's the unfortunate thing is my heart will go on is a fantastic song and it's well performed. But if I hear it to this day, my last sense memory impression is like smoking a cigarette and it coming on a friend's radio and me going, turn that off. Or I swear to God, I'm going to end you just end stop it now. Like they just overplayed the hell out of that thing. Yeah, I, I, I you're. I think you're um, more forgiving of it than I am. Like from the very first moment I heard it, I'm like, oh, what is this? What is this mm. cheesy crap? You have know? you no heart? It's a love song. Come on, man. <laughs> I have no heart. I mean, like I said, I was in high school at the time. I was a senior in high school, and. We were right in the middle of the grunge era, and you know I'm <laughs> listening to you know garbage and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and not Celine Dion, not in the slightest. I remember, I still, I don't know why I remember this, but I remember um, like when they had the little like music playing, you know, before the movie starts in the theater. Yeah, 
and Fiona Apple came on because her first album was just coming out, <laughs> Title, yeah. and I'm like, ah, oh, this is so great, you know? But I don't know why I remember that, but I do. But, um, you know, then you get to the end, and there's Celine Dion singing her thing, and I'm just like, oh, my God, this is just embarrassing. Like, I mean, that's more than anything. I'm just like, this is embarrassing because no. I'm trying to say, like, this is, you know, one of the best movies ever made, and we've just seen this amazing thing. And even the way that the music ends, like, as, you know, they, they do the whole thing, it fades to black, and then there's a little flute, like a three or four note flute solo thing that the, that the, that the piece yeah. of orchestral music ends with. And it's so perfectly done because it comes up and then fades out along with the written and directed by James Cameron credit. So when his credit, it's like you see the whole movie and his credit, it fades out, the music fades out, and then the scroll starts or whatever with My Heart Will Go On. And I'm like, yeah. no, no, no. Okay. So, all, right, all right. Now, in, ter- in terms of that, like, I go back, my moment like that is with uh, the 1989 Batman when oh, I think it was Scandalous no. by Prince Scandalous. started playing over the credits. I was like, no, 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 no. What if, I just watched Batman beat the tar out of everybody, and now you got Scandalous playing? Come on, guys. See, it's, but the thing is, like, my heart will go on. It's fitting. I, you know, I, I won't lie. It was, I, I have always regarded it as that type of song where um, I, I loved it, but it's the type of song that, that a lot of us loved but didn't want to admit that we loved because... Because quite frankly, and this is from the ticker, nobody wanted to sing it to us. And so it was like, you had to hate the song. So you're like, nobody's singing it to me. So it, it sucks, man. It's awful. Nobody's dancing with me. Nah, no, I, that, that was not it for me. That was not it for me. I mean, I, I had all sorts of, <laughs> you know, I mean, hangups, you know, in, in high school for sure. That was not one of them. I can honestly say I was just like, okay, no. Right, nope, then. nope, nope. But scandal. I don't know. See, me, my my reaction to Batman is different because I I saw it, you know, a few years after it had come out and everything. But to me, like as someone who was not like really tuned into pop culture at the time, like that movie more than any other movie represents that time period, and the Prince music is just a part of it and hearing scandalous there. I mean, I love that. I love kiss from a rose at the end of Batman forever. You know, the Ugh. one which doesn't work for me is that weird jazz love song that they put at the end of Batman mask of the phantasm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're right. Okay. I yes, don't know what that right. is, but yeah, but I'm, I can totally get down with, in fact, I was just looking for scandalous no. the other day. No, Scandalous was all wrong because it, like you, you even had the, the reprise of the theme where, you know, little 13-year-old went, William Hootkins, he was Portkins, when, yeah. when he, his credit came up and everything. And then, it, and then it faded out, and it was like for, like, the, the back-end technical people was, like, when Scandalous was playing. It was, yeah. just, it was insulting. I was 13, and I was like, no, come on, man. No, this isn't right. No, I like that. I, I, I liked that, I have to say. Uh, I still love it. still love it. I need to get that song on my iPod. I need to work on that. Anyway. <laughs> um, All right. Okay, so split decision on the on the song, I guess, sort of. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that. I mean, it seems so inappropriate. And there, I mean, here's another thing. Just thinking about the Oscars, it's like he won one Oscar for the score, 
and one Oscar for that song. And it's like that score is such an integral part of that movie and that movie being what it is that it's like, yes, he should be rewarded for that for sure. And then he gets another one for this song, which is just kind of tacked on to the end. And it's like, but, but as I recall, the song was uh, woven in and worked into the score because of the extra six months. The, the oh, like was it, it because wasn't a, of that? Okay. Yeah. If, like the song wasn't going to make it. Mm-hmm. And then because they got the delay, they were able to flesh it out. Like that, that's what I remember. I, I, it, it's probably a little more nuanced than that. But I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that it was the extra six months got that song into the movie. Well, that that makes sense. That's that's interesting. I mean, because you can definitely hear, like the you know, melodically speaking or whatever, the, the you can hear the song throughout the score. Yeah, you know, which is really cool. But I guess the actual lyrics and stuff and hearing it, like, I don't know, like it, it's just weird to me that you know that's. I mean, I know it's for commercial reasons. It's the same reason why they honor you know four actors and one of everything else, but. It's just like, come on, that doesn't count, you know? I mean, it, it's so true. Like, they, they brought it up in, in the freaking Oscars, like when uh, um, It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp won Best Song for, <laughs> yeah. for um, Hustle and Flow, which is a great song, you know? And, and that it does have, you know, a huge, you know, impact on that movie and everything. But, you know, John Stewart gets up there and he's like, and made the joke that guaranteed home. he would never ever host the Oscars again. Yeah. <laughs> Three six mafia one <laughs> Martin Scorsese zero, and I mean that's yeah. true. You know, Eminem has an Oscar. You know, um, I don't think Celine Dion got an Oscar for this. I don't think she wrote it, right? But no, she didn't write it. it w- but he did share the credit with uh, William something. Yeah, some some other guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah who we, we should probably acknowledge, but you know. Yeah, you know, whatever. He's, he's no James Horner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay, well, let's let's take a look at uh, some of the other things that Horner did throughout his career because Titanic and Star Trek are by no means the only things that he did throughout his career. So, um, what are, what are some of your favorites? Like, what's what's a big one for you? Aliens. All right. I mean, yes, a- Aliens. He winds up, and I was thinking about this as I, as I was re-listening to it. One of the heaviest charges leveled against Horner is that he reuses certain cues. He'll borrow a couple of bars from himself. Yeah. Or other people. But yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, Williams, come on, holds yeah, the true. planets basically, you know, was star Wars. Yeah. But, um, you know, and he winds up like, there are certain parts where if you, if you just have aliens playing in the background, you'll think you're listening to star Trek too. Mm-hmm. Um, or but, Patriot games. Yeah. Or 2001 A Space Odyssey. (laughs) But it still fits. It still works with the movie. And the overall themes are really good. I I really like the Aliens score. Yes, he borrows stuff. But, you know, I'm not rushing to his defense. But at the same time, you know, artists like to rely on the same tricks or the same brushstroke or whatever when they're composing something. And so if he borrows a transition here or there, that's no more awful than John Williams borrowing uh, some transitional cues for, uh, for, you know, for some stuff in Return of the Jedi. He borrowed from uh, Superman. For so- but it was none of the major themes. It was just some of the transitions between themes. It's like, yeah, that, 
you know, that's okay. Aliens is really, you know, it's really martial. It's really fun to listen to. And so, I, you know, I, I really like it. Yeah, I don't, you? I don't really have a problem with him reusing stuff from his other scores. I mean, if something works, you know, go for it. Do it again, you know? Yeah. I mean, filmmakers do that all the time, you know? I mean, yeah. what, Spielberg, right? Spielberg used the same joke in 1941 in Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? <laughs> oh, nobody talks about 1941 anymore. <laughs> what? What's that? What? Yeah, you know, 1941 sucks. But the behind-the-scenes footage that Robert Zemeckis shot for 1941, it's really cool. So I'll have to see it. Check that out, yeah. I will. It's on the DVD, at least. But okay. it's, it's pretty interesting. Um. But yeah, yeah, I, I mean, Aliens, I would agree, you know, that's that's a pretty big one for me. And, you know, I think it's kind of cool that he did well, what he did with Wrath of Khan, which is not try to rehash what Goldsmith did yeah. with Alien, but instead, you know, make it a different thing because Aliens was a different thing, you know? Totally. So it's it's really cool, I think, that he, you know, adapted the music to be something different as well. And, uh, yeah, that, that's, that, that's a really strong one. Um, for me, a really big one is, uh, Apollo 13. Um, sure. That's a movie which, you know, every time I watch it, I think like, why is this not part of, you know, the canon for lack of a better, you know, word? Why, why is this not one of the movies which we refer to as the greatest of all time? Because to me, it should be. You know, it's yeah. it's it's so well made. And and a, a big part of that, again, is the score. I mean, you think about the uh, the launch sequence, you know, which is kind of like the centerpiece. And then the yeah. way that that transitions into uh, what's going on, like up in space, like in the same piece and sort of becoming this thing where it's like it goes from like spectacle to kind of like wonder and then, of course, you've got, you know, sort of the thrust of the film, which is basically like the biggest suspense movie you've ever seen, you know, yeah. where, I mean, there's no bad guys or anything like that. There's no one chasing you with a gun, but you're, the clock is chasing you. And it's it's so intense. And, and he he mm -hmm. does such a good job with it. You know, I mean, that's that's a big one for me is Apollo 13. I totally agree. And I think that Apollo 13 is... It, for my money, it's Ron Howard's best movie. Yeah. And it's also, it was also the unfortunate victim of being released in a really strong year for film. Yeah. You know, it, it came out at the same time as like Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. And it's like, good luck getting noticed when those two movies are out there. I mean, I, I mean, good grief. Well, yeah, I mean, I always thought it was crazy that year. Like, uh, I think it, it got nominated for Best Picture, but. Um, Ron Howard didn't get nominated for Best Director. And my I whole thing is, right like, that. he yeah. took his actors up into space, you know? Yeah. What What? What more could you want? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, uh, the, the movie that did win Best Picture that year was mm -hmm. um, an interesting one, and that, that was Braveheart. Well, Braveheart was, yeah, Braveheart was 95, and yeah. Braveheart was a great score. I know that you haven't seen Braveheart still. No. Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you. I, I, I'll watch it. It is. It's a great score. It really is. And I think that what you said about Titanic very much applies to the music in this movie where, 
again, you can hear him borrow some of his own, you know, transitional bars, you know, here and there. But it is, the music complements everything that happens on screen so well, so perfectly, that listening to it, I can literally relive the movie. And I adore Braveheart. So anything that helps me relive the movie is a fantastic thing. I mean, honestly, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, James Cameron composed the scores for two movies that made me cry like a child uh, by the end of them. So, like, hats off to him, because the music definitely has something to do with moving somebody in that way. Braveheart and Titanic, both, you know, waterworks for those movies. And uh, so... Yeah, man. Like the the score for that is is fantastic. Yeah, James James Horner, not James Cameron. No, oh, sorry, James Horner. Yes, I yes. misspoke. Every, everyone knew what you were talking about. So it's yeah, all good. so my bad. <laughs> yeah, um, I, you know, I mean, I'll watch I'll watch Braveheart eventually. Yeah, I will. Yeah. I promise. You're you're just you are just gonna keep torturing me with this. You well, really are. I hate but, but the thing is, you're gonna watch it. I just know what's gonna happen. Like, I almost don't want you to watch it now. Because you're going to watch it, you're going to be like, yeah, it was okay. And at that point, I'm going to manage to come through the connection on the internet and destroy you. No, I was just actually thinking about you because someone on Twitter who I follow literally did just that. He's like, I've never seen Braveheart. I think I'm going to watch it tonight. And then he was kind of like live tweeting it, I guess, or whatever. And he got to the end and he's like, very solid movie. Way too long. Has some yeah. problems, but on the whole, very good. And I'm like, that's going to be my reaction, I know. Probably so. Probably so. Uh, yeah. I mean, whatever. Mel Gibson, he's, uh, well, he's got some issues as far as filmmaking is concerned, as far as I'm concerned with his filmmaking. Um, but, you know, whatever. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Not a huge Randall Wallace fan either, I have to say. <laughs> Why? 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 Uh, why? Yeah. Well, um, let's see. There was um, uh, Pearl Harbor, which he wrote. Oh, no. Which, as much as I like Pearl Harbor, I thought the script was terrible. So Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor was the movie that, that's the one that I think you could very easily level the the criticism that you were saying people were leveling against Titanic, where the first hour and a half... You just didn't care. But then the action in the back half of it is so good that, like, you stayed and watched the rest of it. Yeah. Pearl Harbor I like. I mean, I I think mainly it's the photography which gets me. I I think the photography is outstanding in that movie. But whatever. Mm. Oh. uh, Randall Wallace also directed Secretariat and Heaven is for Real. Interesting. Uh, Secretariat was very underwhelming. I didn't the see book that was one. way, but the book is fantastic. I can't recommend the book highly enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I believe the same author wrote Unbroken, and that's oh. a book that is a. I'm not even going to bother seeing the movie because there's no way a movie can interpret or equal that book in any stretch of the imagination. Coen Brothers, though. Mm. No. <laughs> no. Okay. No. All right. Fair enough. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm probably not going to watch Unbroken either unless I, unless I have to. Um, yeah, no, there, there's no need, but, but back to Horner, uh, Horner, you know, yeah. Another score for you that works. Um, another score for me that works, um, 
how many have you had so far? Well, you did aliens and I forced uh, you into Braveheart. I forced. Yeah, you forced. You, yeah, you, you tricked me into Braveheart. Yeah, uh, just like Braveheart tricked the English <laughs> into that trap halfway through the movie. <laughs> um. Yeah. Uh, well, another another Horner score for me, I guess, would be. You know, I don't know. I, I mean, because we talked about aliens. I mean, there's some. You're overlooking one of his best. You're going to say The Rocketeer. No. No. What? Willow. Oh, I don't even remember that. I watched it once and I was just like, ah. Willow is a a great fun score and it is, uh, it's tremendous work. Like it's Horner doing his John Williams bit because Willow is Ron Howard doing his George Lucas bit. And I I mean, it really is. And but it it works. It's so much fun. And the theme that he came up with and the soundtrack that exists for Willow is it it conveys that sense of just sort of childish. For lack of a better term, that sort of childish. What the hell that Ron Howard sort of puts the movie together with where it's just like, you know, let's just have some fun and not worry about the bigger themes or anything like that. Let's just let's just sit down and have a good time. And the the score very much supports that. Okay. All right. Have you got any others? No, that would tap me out for Horner. All right. All right. Well, you know, I mean, not not that this is one of his best or anything like that, um, but one which uh, is noteworthy in that it just came out uh, a couple weeks ago is Southpaw, which is essentially his his last although you know there's a few other things which 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 are still going to be released um but southpaw is the new movie by antoine fuqua who is one of my favorite uh filmmakers and uh you know it's 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 written by the guy kurt Suter, who created sons of anarchy and it's about what was that sutter sutter okay There you go. Show, shows you how much I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, it's uh, basically um, about a guy who's a boxer, a champion, you know, world champion. And, you know, some crazy stuff happens and he ends up, his life ends up falling apart, like in a big bad way. And it's about him trying to, to piece it back together. And uh, it's a really solid movie. I would definitely recommend it. And it's interesting, like, I was listening to the score, because uh, it's on, you know, Apple Music and everything. I was listening to it uh, earlier uh, today or yesterday, and it's very different from uh, Horner's other scores in one sense because it feels a lot more modern in a way. You mm-hmm. know, I don't know if that makes any sense. Like, maybe a lot of it, I mean, he's really good at sort of adapting to the material, like you were saying, like the militaristic quality of Aliens. If you listen to the Avatar score, it's very sort of like almost, I want to say like kind of like tribal, you know? Yeah, Um, that's fair. But uh, with Southpaw, it's very sort of, I mean, the the only thing that I can think of is sort of like modern, you know? Mm -hmm. And it has this sort of um, street, you know, mentality to it, you know, which I think is, is very much present in the movie. It's about a guy who grew up, you know, like in the in the foster care system and everything like that and sort of rose to fame and everything, but never um, lost that side of his his personality, you know. 
he was always, uh, you know, sort of um, still stuck in in his past in one way or mm-hmm. another. And um, the score reflects that. And the, the other thing which I found to be rather interesting about it is unlike stuff like Titanic, where it's very much sort of um, uh, movie-driven, like scene-driven and, and everything, and, and complementing like exactly what is on screen, this was more like mood music. Like I'm listening to the to the score, you know, track by track, and each track I'm like, this sounds exactly the same. It's much more just sort of like this thematic stuff, which mm-hmm. is running through like underneath the, the the scenes instead of like engaging with them, um, mm. which was an interesting style, you know, and, and I think appropriate to the piece. But um, there were no moments where it stood out for me and I'm just like oh this is great like like we were talking about with like the the music weaving or the the song you know my heart will go on like weaving in and out of of the score you know there there's nothing mm-hmm. like that going on it was very much sort of a, a more subdued score um and and it you know taking that philosophy I think is interesting because it it I think will be easier to apply what he's written for um Magnificent Seven to the actual movie, which, you know, same director and everything. You know, Mm -hmm. we talked about last week how, you know, he's written um, uh, stuff for for that movie or he had written before he he passed away. And I'm sure, I mean, how could they not incorporate that stuff into the movie, right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, just for the tug it at the heartstrings alone to be like James Horner wrote this before he died right for your consideration <laughs> and and you know uh it's it's the type of thing where I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if they bring in like another person to mm-hmm. f- fill it out you know sure but it's going to be based on those themes just like someone who's doing a new Star Wars movie will always use John Williams's themes you know so, yeah. so I mean that that's that's kind of interesting to me, and I, I think that it could make for an interesting score for sure. And you know, in the hands of of a, a filmmaker as skilled as Antoine Fuqua, I'm sure it'll be impressive. You know. Yeah. So that's that. And any uh, final thoughts on Horner's career? Yeah, you know, he's never. I don't think in geek circles he'll ever get quite the same respect as say a John Williams. But he will always be able to hang his hat, or would have been able to hang his hat, however you want to phrase it, on Star Trek II and Aliens, which are two of, you know, even if you don't consider them two of the the finest movies you've ever seen, they're definitely two of the best, uh, you know, sci-fi movies that have ever been created. Um, But... You know, he, he definitely made his mark, you know, and at the very least with, with Titanic. I mean, Titanic and Braveheart, you know, they're, they're what, two years separated, and they've got, they're so epic, and they're so indelible that you can't deny the guy's contribution to, you know, the filmmaking scores in general. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, he isn't one of those names that, that stands out to me really in the in 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 the the list of of the best uh composers of all time you know i mean that is kind of reserved for williams and goldsmith and you know throw in john bryan there as a wild card but he's he is my my absolute favorite i'm sorry 
Hans um, Zimmer. <laughs> Hans Zimmer. There you go. But, you know, it, the the stuff that he did speaks for itself. And it's one of those things, like Apollo 13, for example, you know, where mm-hmm. while you may not think about it off the top of your head, when you do take the time to analyze it, his career, you do realize that, like, the stuff that he did was legendary. And uh, it, it's part of not only the, the, the film landscape, but, you know, the cultural landscape in general, for sure. Yeah, you know, sure. I mean, you're just talking about how my heart will go on was everywhere <laughs> to the point of you know, you know, I mean, the rage that it induced. I mean, that that, that says something. Yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. you can only hope that you have that impact on on society. You know, yeah, it means you're doing something right. So yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully this show at some point will inspire rage on that scale. I, I think we can do it. Oh yeah, I mean, I think while um, maybe the rage won't be as widespread, I think it could be <laughs> as intense. You know, easily. You know, white hot like Starfire. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. E- exactly. Even though if it's like a very little contained flame, <laughs> you know. Oh, a white dwarf will still burn you. Yeah. So still burn you. So we'll, we'll we'll try to do that. We'll try to enrage you. Yeah, yeah. it's good. It's good to be enraged. <laughs> well, it's been good talking about James Horner's career today, but that's not the only thing we're talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek FM, Standard Orbit. And I'm just like, wait a second. Wait, no. They wouldn't do that. Would they do that? No, they wouldn't do that. And then, like, they, they did the whole scene again. And I was like, what? Ah! Earl Grey. Really, she's following the Hasbrat, I think, is really what it is. <laughs> Come for the revolution, stay for the Hasbrat. It's got to be fresh Hasbrat. None of that replicates. Like, Daniel's, like, at the watching the end of this episode, like, tears are coming down the face. It's like, no, it's the Hasbrat. It's so spicy. It's what it is. <laughs> the Orb. Also, the original title of this episode was A Matter of Breeding, which, when we talk about things feeling TNG-ish, that could have been a Riker episode. <laughs> The Ready Room. It's about people and feelings and emotions. It's about philosophy. It's about the future. It's about hope. It's about glory. It's about intellectual promise. That's what Axanar is about. It is not a story about pew, pew, pew. I promise you that. To the journey! There's flamethrowers and cannibalism, and yet he's saying it's a big (laughs) snore. Warp 5. It kind of like is akin to um, when fans saw the Galaxy class in the next generation for the very first time, and you had a, basically a crew and civilian complement of what over a thousand people. About two thirds of that complement were civilians and their families. So you d- actually did have teachers and scholars and scientists and their extended families on board. Commentary: Trek stars. But you would never pick up on that based on the way that it plays out, aside from the fact that they explicitly tell you in the dialogue, you know? The 602 Club. I mean, it's a, it's really, it's about growth. It's about taking a character that has problems and flaws and becoming a better person. You can say that about lots of movies. 
literary treks. Deep Space Nine, among all the Star Trek series, is the one that really, over time, and I'm talking about now on the television series, not just in the books, changed the most. Axanar, the official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. I like the episode. I don't love the Riker. I don't love the Riker. I... <laughs> the Riker of it all. I'm sorry. Is there is there an Enterprise lady, a regular Enterprise lady that Riker does not bone? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. You know, Also, uh, leave us a review because that apparently helps us out too. And we like reviews and we'll read them on the air. Uh, so tell us why why uh, you agree with us or disagree with us. Tell us what you think James Horner's fa- uh, best score is, and 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 what you think about My Heart Will Go On. And we'll we'll even read it in a uh, phony British accent if you want. Sure, Just say it. Sure, yeah. Um, if, if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And, of course, you can stream and download the MP3 files from our website and grab the RSS link there as well. Uh, another way that you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trekfm, uh, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. If you want to contact us, you can fill out the form on trek.fm. Just go to trek.fm slash contact. You can also leave us a voicemail. Just look on the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. You can find the network on Twitter at trek.fm, and you can find the network on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Also on Facebook, you can find the Babel Conference. Just type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field. Uh, on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click the discussion tab on the menu bar. So where can people find you, John? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, where I do not confuse the names James Horner and James Cameron. <laughs> and you can also find me on a weekly podcast uh, called uh, Words with Nerds that airs every Thursday with my buddy Craig. All right, and you can find me right here on Trek FM doing Standard Orbit with Drew. Or you can find me on my website commentarytrackstars.com where I do commentary track stars off topic and commentary track star babies where you can find a commentary for Titanic which uh, was actually you know not a not a bad one if I do say so myself you know some of our commentaries were pretty crappy 
but Titanic, <laughs> Titanic, I think was was rather solid. We broke it up into two parts, so so as not to overwhelm. And uh, go go check it out for sure. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Mumbles Three K. Uh, or you can find the show on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. All right. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, TrekStars, and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Do you have a book for us this week, John? I do have a book for us this week. It's called Titanic Voices from the Disaster by Deborah Hopkinson. Scheduled to coincide with the 100th anniversary of the tragic sinking of the Titanic, a topic that continues to haunt and thrill listeners to this day, this audiobook by critically acclaimed author Deborah Hopkinson weaves together the voices and stories of real Titanic survivors and witnesses to the disaster. From the stewardess Violet Jessup to Captain Arthur Rostron of the Carpathia, who came to the rescue of the sinking ship. Packed with heart-stopping action, devastating drama, and more. And you can get this book for free since you listen to Trek FM. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice, along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and the network. Well, that's it for James Horner. And next week, we're going to sort of segue into some more composers and whatnot, or one more composer and whatnot. And we're going to take a look at uh, the guy who preceded James Horner, Jerry Goldsmith. 